Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 5 The 415 Express slid softly out of Paddington Station, and Ash Marson settled himself in the corner seat of his second-class compartment. Opposite him, Joan Valentine had begun to read a magazine. Along the corridor, in a first-class smoking compartment, Mr. Peters was lighting a big black cigar. Still farther, along the corridor, in a first-class non-smoking compartment, Aileen Peters looked through the window and thought of many things. In English trains... The tipping classes travel first. Valets, lady maids, footmen, nurses, and head silver maids, second. And housemaids, grooms, and minor and inferior silver maids, third. But for these social distinctions, the whole fabric of society would collapse, and anarchy stalk naked through the land, as in the United States. Ash was feeling remarkably light-hearted. He wished he had not bought Joan that magazine and thus deprived himself temporarily of the pleasure of her conversation, but that was the only flaw in his happiness. With the starting of the train, which might be considered the formal and official beginning of the delicate and dangerous enterprise on which he had embarked, he had definitely come to the conclusion that the life adventurous was the life for him. He had frequently suspected this to be the case, but it had required the actual experiment to bring certainty. Almost more than physical courage, the ideal adventurer needs a certain lively inquisitiveness, the quality of not being content to mind his own affairs, and in Ash this quality was highly developed. From boyhood up he had always been interested in things that were none of his business, and it is just that attribute which the modern young man, as a rule, so sadly lacks. The modern young man may do adventurous things if they are thrust on him, but left to himself he will edge away uncomfortably and look in the other direction when the goddess of adventure smiles at him. Training and tradition alike pluck at his sleeve and urge him not to risk making himself ridiculous. And from sheer horror of laying himself open to the charge of not minding his own business, he falls into a stolid disregard of all that is out of the ordinary and exciting. He tells himself that the shriek from the lonely house he passed just now was only the high note of some amateur songstress, and that the maiden in distress whom he saw pursued by the ruffian with a knife was merely earning the salary paid her by some motion picture firm, and he proceeds on his way, looking neither to left nor right. Ash had none of this degenerate coyness towards adventure. Though born within easy distance of Boston and deposited by circumstances in London, he possessed nevertheless to a remarkable degree that quality so essentially the property of the New Yorker 
the quality known, for want of a more polished word, as rubber. It is true that it had needed the eloquence of Joan Valentine to stir him from his groove, but that was because he was also lazy. He loved new sights and new experiences. Yes, he was happy. The rattle of the train shaped itself into a lively march. He told himself that he had found the right occupation for a young man in the spring. Joan, meantime, entrenched behind her magazine, was also busy with her thoughts. She was not reading the magazine. She held it before her as a protection, knowing that if she laid it down, Ash would begin to talk. And just at present, she had no desire for conversation. She, like Ash, was contemplating the immediate future, but unlike him, was not doing so with much pleasure. She was regretting heartily that she had not resisted the temptation to uplift this young man, and wishing that she had left him to wallow in the slothful peace in which she had found him. It is curious how frequently in this world our attempts to stimulate and uplift swoop back on us and smite us like boomerangs. Ash's presence was the direct outcome of her lecture on Enterprise, and it added a complication to an already complicated venture. She did her best to be fair to Ash. It was not his fault that he was about to try to deprive her of $5,000, which she looked on as her personal property. But, illogically, she found herself feeling a little hostile. She glanced furtively at him over the magazine, choosing by ill chance a moment when he had just directed his gaze at her. Their eyes met, and there was nothing for it but to talk. So she tucked away her hostility in a corner of her mind, where she could find it again when she wanted it, and prepared for the time being to be friendly. After all, except for the fact that he was her rival, this was a pleasant and amusing young man, and one for whom, until he made the announcement that had changed her whole attitude toward him, she had entertained a distinct feeling of friendship, nothing warmer. There was something about him that made her feel that she would have liked to stroke his hair in a motherly way, and straighten his tie, and have cozy chats with him in darkened rooms by the light of open fires, and make him tell her his inmost thoughts, and stimulate him to do something really worthwhile with his life. But this, she held, was merely the instinct of a generous nature to be kind and helpful even to a comparative stranger. "'Well, Mr. Marson,' she said, "'here we are.' "'Exactly what I was thinking,' said Ash. "'He was conscious of a marked increase in the exhilaration "'the starting of the expedition had brought to him. "'At the back of his mind he realized "'there had been all along a kind of wistful resentment "'at the change in this girl's manner towards him. "'During the brief conversation when he had told her "'of his having secured his present situation,' and later, only a few minutes back, on the platform of Paddington Station, he had sensed a coldness, a certain hostility, so different from her pleasant friendliness at their first meeting. She had returned now to her earlier manner, and he was surprised at the difference it made. He felt somehow younger, more alive. The lilt of the train's rattle changed to a gay ragtime. This was curious, because Joan was nothing more than a friend. He was not in love with her. One does not fall in love with a girl whom one has met only three times. One is attracted, yes, but one does not fall in love. 
A moment's reflection enabled him to diagnose his sensations correctly. This odd impulse to leap across the compartment and kiss Joan was not love. It was merely the natural desire of a good-hearted young man to be decently chummy with his species. "'Well, what do you think of it all, Mr. Marson?' said Joan. "'Are you sorry or glad that you let me persuade you to do this perfectly mad thing?' I feel responsible for you, you know. If it had not been for me, you would have been comfortably in Arundel Street, writing your wand of death. I'm glad. You don't feel any misgivings now that you're actually committed to domestic service. Not one. Joan, against her will, smiled approval on this uncompromising attitude. This young man might be her rival, but his demeanor on the eve of perilous times appealed to her. That was the spirit she liked and admired, that reckless acceptance of whatever might come. It was the spirit in which she herself had gone into the affair, and she was pleased to find that it animated Ash also, though to be sure it had its drawbacks. It made his rivalry the more dangerous. This reflection injected a touch of the old hostility into her manner. I wonder whether you will continue to feel so brave. What do you mean? Joan perceived that she was in danger of going too far. She had no wish to unmask Ash at the expense of revealing her own secret. She must resist the temptation to hint that she had discovered his. I meant, she said quickly, that from what I have seen of him, Mr. Peter seems likely to be rather trying man to work for. Ash's face cleared. For a moment, he had almost suspected that she had guessed his errand. Yes, I imagine he will be. He is what you might call quick-tempered. He has dyspepsia, you know. I know. What he wants is plenty of fresh air and no cigars, and a regular course of those Larson exercises that amused you so much. Joan laughed. Are you going to try and persuade Mr. Peters to twist himself about like that? "'Do let me see it if you do. "'I wish I could. "'Do suggest it to him. "'Don't you think he would resent it from a valet? "'I keep forgetting that you are a valet. "'You look so unlike one. "'Old Peters didn't think so. "'He rather complimented me on my appearance. "'He said I was ordinary-looking. "'I shouldn't have called you that. "'You look so very strong and fit. "'Surely there are muscular valets.' Well, yes, I suppose there are. Ash looked at her. He was thinking that never in his life had he seen a girl so amazingly pretty. What it was that she had done to herself was beyond him, but something, some trick of dress, had given her a touch of the demure that made her irresistible. She was dressed in sober black, the ideal background for her fairness. While on the subject, he said, I suppose you know you don't look in the least like a lady's maid. You look like a disguised princess. She laughed. That's very nice of you, Mr. Marson, but you're quite wrong. Anyone could tell I was a lady's maid a mile away. You aren't criticizing the dress, surely. The dress is all right. It's the general effect. I don't think your expression is right. It's, it's, there's too much attack in it. You aren't meek enough. 
Joan's eyes opened wide. Meek, have you ever seen an English lady's maid, Mr. Marson? Why, no, now that I come to think of it, I don't believe I have. Well, let me tell you that meekness is her last quality. Why should she be meek? Doesn't she go in after the groom of the chambers? Go in? Go in where? In to dinner. She smiled at the sight of his bewildered face. I'm afraid you don't know much about the etiquette of the new world you have entered so rashly. Didn't you know that the rules of precedence among the servants of a big house in England are more rigid and complicated than in English society? You're joking. I'm not joking. You try going into dinner out of your proper place when we get to Blandings and see what happens. A public rebuke from the butler is the least you could expect. A bead of perspiration appeared on Ash's forehead. Heavens, he whispered, if a butler publicly rebuked me, I think I should commit suicide. I couldn't survive it. He stared with fallen jaw into the abyss of horror into which he had leapt so lightheartedly. The servant problem, on this large scale, had been non-existent for him until now. In the days of his youth at Mailing, Massachusetts, his needs had been ministered to by a muscular Swede. Later, at Oxford, there had been a scout and his bedmaker, harmless persons both, provided you locked up your whiskey. And in London, his last phase, a succession of servitors of the type of the disheveled maid at number seven had tended him. That, dotted about the land of his adoption, there were houses in which larger staffs of domestics were maintained, he had been vaguely aware. Indeed, in Gridley Quayle's investigator, The Adventure of the Missing Marquis, number four of the series, he had drawn a picture of the home life of a duke, in which a butler and two powdered footmen had played their parts. But he had had no idea that rigid and complicated rules of etiquette swayed the private lives of these individuals. If he had given the matter a thought, he had supposed that when the dinner hour arrived, the butler and the two footmen would troop into the kitchen and squash in at the table, wherever they found room. "'Tell me,' he said, "'tell me all you know. I feel as though I had escaped a frightful disaster.' "'You probably have. I don't suppose there's anything so terrible as a snub from a butler.' "'If there is, I can't think of it.' When I was at Oxford, I used to go and stay with a friend of mine who had a butler that looked like a Roman emperor in Swallowtails. He terrified me. I used to grovel to the man. Please give me all the pointers you can. Well, as Mr. Peter's valet, I suppose you'll be rather a big man. I shan't feel it. However large the house party is, Mr. Peter's is sure to be the principal guest, so your standing will be correspondingly magnificent. You come after the butler, the housekeeper, the groom of the chambers, Lord Emsworth's valet, Lady Anne Warblington's lady's maid. Who is she? Lady Anne? Lord Emsworth's sister. She has lived with him since his wife died. What was I saying? Oh, yes. After them come the Honorable Frederick Threepwood's valet, and myself, and then you. I'm not so high up then after all. "'Yes, you are. There's a whole crowd who come after you. "'It all depends on how many other guests there are besides Mr. Peters.' "'I suppose I charge in at the head of a drove of housemaids and scullery maids.' "'My dear Mr. Marson, 
if a housemaid or a scullery maid tried to get into the steward's room and have her meals with us, she would be... rebuked by the butler? Lynched, I should think. Kitchen maids and scullery maids eat in the kitchen. Chauffeurs, footmen, under-butler, pantry boys, hall boy, odd man, and steward's room footmen take their meals in the servants' hall, waited on by the hall boy. The still-room maids have breakfast and tea in the still-room, and dinner and supper in the hall. The housemaids and nursery maids have breakfast and tea in the housemaid's sitting-room, and dinner and supper in the hall. The head housemaid ranks next to the head still-room maid. The laundry maids have a place of their own near the laundry, and the head laundry maid ranks above the head housemaid. The chef has his meals in a room of his own near the kitchen. Is there anything else I can tell you, Mr. Marson? Ash was staring at her with vacant eyes. He shook his head dumbly. We stop at Swindon in half an hour, said Joan softly. Don't you think you would be wise to get out there and go straight back to London, Mr. Marson? Think of all you would avoid. Ash found speech. It's a nightmare. You would be far happier in Arundel Street. Why don't you get out at Swindon and go back? Ash shook his head. I can't. There's there's a reason. Joan picked up her magazine again. Hostility had come out from the corner into which she had tucked it away and was once more filling her mind. She knew it was illogical, but she couldn't help it. For a moment, during her revelations of servant's etiquette, she had allowed herself to hope that she had frightened her rival out of the field, and the disappointment made her feel irritable. She buried herself in a short story, encountered Ash's attempts at renewing the conversation with cold monosyllables until he'd ceased his efforts and fell into a moody silence. He was feeling hurt and angry. Her sudden coldness, following on the friendliness with which she had talked so long, puzzled and infuriated him. He felt as though he had been snubbed, and for no reason. He resented the defensive magazine, though he had bought it for her himself. He resented her attitude of having ceased to recognize his existence. A sadness, a filmy melancholy, crept over him. He brooded on the unutterable silliness of humanity, especially the female portion of it, in erecting artificial barriers to friendship. It was so unreasonable. At their first meeting, when she might have been excused for showing defensiveness, she had treated him with unaffected ease. When that meeting had ended, there was a tacit understanding between them that all the preliminary awkwardnesses of the first stages of acquaintanceship were to be considered as having been passed, and that when they met again, if they ever did, it would be as friends. And here she was, luring him on with apparent friendliness, and then withdrawing into herself as though he had presumed. A rebellious spirit took possession of him. He didn't care. Let her be cold and distant. He would show her that she had no monopoly of those qualities. He would not speak to her until she spoke to him, and when she spoke to him, he would freeze her with his courteous but bleakly aloof indifference. The train rattled on. Joan read her magazine. Silence reigned in the second-class compartment. Swindon was reached and passed. Darkness fell on the land. The journey began to seem interminable to Ash. 
but presently there came a creaking of the brakes, and the train jerked itself to another stop. A voice on the platform made itself heard, calling, Market Blandings, Market Blandings Station. The village of Market Blandings is one of those sleepy English hamlets that modern progress has failed to touch, except by the addition of a railroad station and a room over the grocer's shop where moving pictures are on view on Tuesdays and Fridays. The church is Norman, and the intelligence of the majority of the natives Paleozoic. To alight at Market Blanding Station in the dusk of a rather chilly spring day, when the southwest wind has shifted to due east and the thrifty inhabitants have not yet lit their windows, is to be smitten with the feeling that one is at the edge of the world with no friends near. Ash, as he stood beside Mr. Peter's baggage and raked the unsympathetic darkness with a dreary eye, gave himself up to melancholy. Above him, an oil lamp shed a meager light. Along the platform, a small but sturdy porter was juggling with a milk can. The east wind explored Ash's system with chilly fingers. Somewhere out in the darkness into which Mr. Peters and Aileen had already vanished in a large automobile lay the castle with its butler and its fearful code of etiquette. Soon the cart that was to convey him and the trunks thither would be arriving. He shivered. Out of the gloom and into the feeble rays of the oil lamp came Joan Valentine. She had been away, tucking Aileen into the car. She looked warm and cheerful. She was smiling in the old friendly way. If girls realized their responsibilities, they would be so careful when they smiled that they would probably abandon the practice altogether. There are moments in a man's life when a girl's smile can have as important results as an explosion of dynamite. In the course of their brief acquaintance, Joan had smiled at Ash many times, but the conditions governing those occasions had not been such as to permit him to be seriously affected. He had been pleased on such occasions. He had admired her smile in a detached and critical spirit, but he had not been overwhelmed by it. The frame of mind necessary for that result had been lacking. Now, however, after five minutes of solitude on the depressing platform of Market Blanding Station, he was what the spiritualists call a sensitive subject. He had reached that depth of gloom and bodily discomfort when a sudden smile has all the effect of strong liquor and good news administered simultaneously, warming the blood and comforting the soul and generally turning the world from a bleak desert into a land flowing with milk and honey. It is not too much to say that he reeled before Joan's smile. It was so entirely unexpected. He clutched Mr. Peter's steamer trunk in his emotion. All his resolutions to be cold and distant were swept away. He had the feeling that in a friendless universe, here was somebody who was fond of him and glad to see him. A smile of such importance demands analysis, and in this case repays it for many things lay behind the smile of Joan Valentine's on the platform of Market Blanding Station. In the first place, she had had another of her swift changes of mood and had once again tucked hostility into its corner. She had thought it over and had come to the conclusion that as she had no logical grievance against Ash for anything he had done to be distant to him was the behavior of a cat. Consequently, she resolved, when they should meet again, 
to resume her attitude of good fellowship. That in itself would have been enough to make her smile. There was another reason, however, which had nothing to do with Ash. While she had been tucking Aileen into the automobile, she had met the eye of the driver of that vehicle and had perceived a curious look in it, a look of amazement and sheer terror. A moment later, when Aileen called the driver Freddy, she had understood. No wonder the Honorable Freddy had looked as though he had seen a ghost. It would be a relief to the poor fellow when, as he undoubtedly would do in the course of the drive, he inquired of Aileen the name of her maid and was told that it was Simpson. He would mutter something about, reminds me of a girl I used to know, and would brood on the remarkable way in which nature produces doubles. But he had had a bad moment, and it was partly at the recollection of his face that Joan smiled. A third reason was because the sight of the Honorable Freddy had reminded her that R. Jones had said he had written her poetry. That thought, too, had contributed toward the smile which so dazzled Ash. Ash, not being miraculously intuitive, accepted the easier explanation that she had smiled because she was glad to be in his company, and this thought, coming on top of his mood of despair and general dissatisfaction with everything mundane, acted on him like some powerful chemical. In every man's life, there is generally one moment to which in later years he can look back and say, In this moment I fell in love. Such a moment came to Ash now. Betwixt the stirrup and the ground, mercy I asked, mercy I found. So sings the poet, and so it was with Ash. In the almost incredibly brief time it took the small but sturdy porter to roll a milk can across the platform and hump it with a clang against other milk cans treated a moment before, Ash fell in love. The word is so loosely used to cover a thousand varying shades of emotion, from the volcanic passion of an Antony for a Cleopatra to the tepid preference of a grocer's assistant for the Irish maid at the second house on Main Street, as opposed to the Norwegian maid at the first house past the post office. The mere statement that Ash fell in love is not a sufficient description of his feelings as he stood grasping Mr. Peter's steamer trunk. Analysis is required. From his fourteenth year onward, Ash had been in love many times. His sensations in the case of Joan were neither the terrific upheaval that had caused him, in his fifteenth year, to collect twenty-eight photographs of the heroine of the road company of a musical comedy which had visited the Hailing Opera House, nor the milder flame that had caused him, when at college, to give up smoking for a week and try to read the complete works of Ella Wheeler Wilcox. His love was something that lay between these two poles, he did not wish the station platform of Market Blandings to be suddenly congested so that he might save Joan's life, and he did not wish to give up anything at all. But he was conscious, to the very depths of his being, that a future in which Joan did not figure would be so insupportable as not to bear considering. And in the immediate present, he very strongly favored the idea of clasping Joan in his arms and kissing her until further notice." mingled with these feelings was an excited gratitude to her for coming to him like this, with that electric smile on her face. A stunned realization that she was a thousand times prettier 
than he had ever imagined, and a humility that threatened to make him lose his clutch on the steamer trunk and roll about at her feet, yapping like a dog. Gratitude, so far as he could dissect his tangled emotion, was the predominating ingredient of his mood. Only once in his life had he felt so passionately grateful to any human being. On that occasion, too, the object of his gratitude had been feminine. Years before, when a boy in his father's home in distant Hailing, Massachusetts, those in authority had commanded that he, in his eleventh year, and as shy as one can only be at that interesting age, should rise in the presence of a room full of strangers, adult guests, and recite The Wreck of the Hesperus. He had risen, he had blushed, he had stammered, he had contrived to whisper, It was the schooner Hesperus. And then, in a corner of the room, a little girl, for no properly explained reason, had burst out crying. She had yelled, she had bellowed, and would not be comforted. And in the ensuing confusion, Ash had escaped to the woodpile at the bottom of the garden, saved by a miracle. All his life he had remembered the gratitude he had felt for that little timely girl, and never until now had he experienced any other similar spasm, but as he looked at Joan, he found himself renewing that emotion of fifteen years ago. She was about to speak. In a sort of trance, he watched her lips part. He waited almost reverently for the first words she should speak to him, in her new role, of the only authentic goddess. "'Isn't it a shame,' she said. "'I've just put a penny in the chocolate slot machine, and it's empty. I've a good mind to write to the company.' Ash felt as though he were listening to the strains of some grand, sweet anthem. The small but sturdy porter, weary of his work among the milk cans, or perhaps, let us not do him an injustice even in thought, having finished it, approached them. The cart from the castle's here. In the gloom beyond him there gleamed a light which had not been there before. The meditative snort of a horse supported his statement. He began to deal as authoritatively with Mr. Peter's steamer trunk as he had dealt with milk cans. At last, said Joan, I hope it's a covered cart. I'm frozen. Let's go and see. Ash followed her with the gait of an automaton. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise. The future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.